Good morning again. I hope you've all had a wonderful Christmas. And my first question this morning is, and while we're reading our scripture verse, or just or while we're doing that, I want you to think, were you involved in any of the stock tax sales this year? Okay, because I'm going to ask you that question as soon as we, uh, we have our scripture reading. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah. He's not one of the uh, minor prophets. He stuck after Judges, before your Psalms, after Israel. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 14 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read together. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was with him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity, and cover not their iniquity, and let not their sin be blotted out from before thee, for they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. And it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence ye shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore said I in the lower places behind the wall, and on the higher places I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Let's uh, go to the word, uh, Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your blessed word. Thank you that you have recorded it for us in, in perfection, that we can rely on every word, that we can look to it for our sustenance, Lord, that we might grow thereby. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning, as, as we preach this morning, as your word is shared, that our hearts would be open 
Lord, to it, that we'd be ready to receive it with all gladness, that we'd be ready to, uh, to live by it, that we might grow into the perfect image of our Lord and our Saviour, that we might give him the glory. Heavenly Father, I pray for the presence of your Spirit here this morning, that he would use me, Lord, for the purpose of sharing your truth. And I pray that our hearts would indeed be blessed as we leave this place this morning, more challenged to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now I asked you, how many of you were involved in stock take sales or got involved with it? Can I have a show of hands? You know, I knew that no one would actually raise their hand. Oh, there was one over there. Okay, good. Two honest people. Stock take sales. You know, when I was growing up, I think it must have been, I think I must have been at least 16 years old before I even realised what a stock take sale was. I had no idea of what a stock take sale was. And I think a lot of people don't understand what a stock take sale is, unless you've been in retail and you know about counting all the stock that's at hand. When I, was, I, I learned when I was at university working in the computer department what a stock take was, because I was, in a, I was in an area where they would fix not only sell computers internally to the, uh, to the different departments in the university, but there was a maintenance department there as well, through which, or to which we supplied all the different parts to computers. So we literally had buckets of chips, of microchips, buckets of them, loose. And once every six months, we would have to do a stock take of those. And it was an all-night affair. And it was a terrible, terrible time. By the end of it, you were, you were counting chips one after the other. You were counting all these different things and things you didn't realise you had. They came out of the woodwork. And, and then you're, you're, that you were given a list of things that you were meant to have. And then as you're counting and you see five and you write down two, you know, a little bead of sweat starts to drop, drop down because some of those chips were worth $1,000 each. So by the end of it, uh, you realise that there was things weren't stacking up as they, they should. And most of it was due to errors, people not writing down in their, in their um, you know, reports what was actually used. But then I found out that, that stock takes, they have stock take sales because what they're trying to do is lower the numbers as much as they can, flog off as much stuff as they can, so when it comes time to that counting, they, they have less to count. So it's a bit easier. Nehemiah was doing a stock take. Nehemiah was a Jew living in exile in Babylon or Persia. And... They were in ex the Jews were in exile because God had punished them because of their sin. And they found themselves exiled and living as slaves and servants to, first of all, the Babylonians. And in this particular case, after the Babylonians came the Persians. Years had come and gone. It was King Nebuchadnezzar, some of you would know, that took them away from Jerusalem. They destroyed all of Jerusalem broke down their walls, they besieged them, and now years and years, at least 50 years had gone by now, and the Persians had replaced the Babylonians. But the Jews were still in, in captivity, they were still in exile. And Artaxerxes was the king in this particular case, and Nehemiah was a Jew who was what was called a cupbearer to the king. 
In other words, he was the one personally serving the king his food, checking to make sure that everything was okay. So he was in quite an official and important position. And he was serving in a place called Shushan. When he hears a report come back to him, you see, a few years earlier, uh, there was another king who had said to the Jews, all right, I'm going to let you go back now to your hometown in Jerusalem, to your capital, to allow you to begin to rebuild the walls of your city and to begin rebuilding the city. And Nehemiah hadn't gone back with the original group, but had stayed back in Persia. And he received news. Turn back to chapter 1 in Nehemiah. And we'll see the beginning of this particular book. And what this book is about is Nehemiah's response to what he hears about what was happening back in Jerusalem. And it says the words of Nehemiah, the son of um, Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and asked them, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a burden for his people. Nehemiah had had a burden for his country, especially for Jerusalem, which was the the capital, the centre of their whole system of worship. And it was burned down, it was destroyed, it wasn't being rebuilt as it was supposed to. So Nehemiah has this tremendous burden on his heart. He does it as a stock take and says, this is not good enough. And he asks, he prays to God. And he asks God specifically to grant him grace in the eyes of the king. For what purpose? That the king might let him go back to Jerusalem to begin building that wall again and to begin that work. Now that's a burden. You know, people say these days, I've got a burden for something, but I want to make sure someone else goes and actually does it. True burden is where you're ready to dirty your hands as well. And Nehemiah was ready to get his hands dirty. He was ready to pack up, move back to where he came from originally, and to begin the work, as dangerous as it actually was. So the... Nehemiah gave such, if you look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, he gave such an impassioned plea to the king that the king actually said, go and you have my blessing and you have a royal decree that you can actually go and do this thing under my protection and authority. So Nehemiah made the journey to Jerusalem to help the Jews build the wall round Jerusalem again. And this is where our story commences in chapter 4. Because Nehemiah was well into his work at this stage. He was organising people, he was organising their efforts. And then we read about the the introduction of these two unsavoury characters, Sanballat and Tobiah. Okay, And we'll look at them a little bit uh, further on. But before we do, 
I want to explain to you why it was so important for them to rebuild these walls. You might say, well, so what? Why did they have to rebuild the walls for? Why couldn't they just build the houses and start reorganising the, um, the, the, the codes of law and, and the rule over there? Well, in ancient times, most cities had walls. They were surrounded by high walls. And the main purpose was that of defence. The walls would generally be high, very strong and several metres thick. They weren't small walls. This wasn't a fence they were building around the actual town. This was thick walls, thick enough for people to walk around on top of and high enough to give them enough safeguard so marauders and armies couldn't break through. The top of the wall would generally be wide enough for people to transverse or to, to cross over and to walk around. And from there, the guards of the city or the soldiers would be able to see both what was happening inside the city and what was going on outside the city. The wall would also have a section where there was massive gates. And these gates were the most important part of the life of the city because during the day, the gates would be open to allow people who were travelling, people who were doing trade, to come in and out under the guise of, or under the guard of, the soldiers standing on those walls. But at night, guess what happened to those gates? They were shut. At night, no one's going in and no one is getting out. Because at night, the, the concern is that if there was an invading army, that they would try to sneak in through those gates. So during the day, so during the night, they would shut those gates and the city would be safe. And the wall, walls were generally so strong in these cities and so thick and so solid that people would build their homes against them. So the actual walls became part of people's homes and in some cases their homes extended the thickness of the walls. So you had an initial wall, you had a home, and then the roofs of those homes, which were built on top of each other, became a wider thickness. That's why we read in Jericho that they used to, the walls were so thick around Jericho that they, were, they used to be able to race chariots around the top. That's how thick they actually were. So Nehemiah knew something. Nehemiah knew that without the protective barrier of these city walls, that the people inside couldn't dwell in safety, that they would always be at the mercy of marauders, thieves and foreign armies who were eyeing each other out and, and, and looking to see what they could take and, and, what, and, and, and try to expand their kingdoms. So it was essential for those walls to be rebuilt before they did anything else. They might as well, they might as well have, if they didn't build the walls, build buildings and do things and say, here you go, they're all yours, take them. In those days, you needed walls to keep things safe. Now, what does that have to do with us today? Well, history has shown us that whenever you and I, as Nehemiah was doing, whenever you and I try to do something important for God, whenever you try to do something important from a spiritual point of view, you will face strong opposition as Nehemiah did, as we, read, as we read in this passage. Satan doesn't waste his time with people who are half-hearted. 
He doesn't have to. Because people who are half-hearted about God aren't a threat to him. In fact, they are quite useful to him. But when it comes, but when it when a person wakes from the from their spiritual lethargy and says, I'm going to get serious about the things of God. I'm going to give my life to Christ and I'm going to obey him as best I can. I will do the things that God requires of me. Then all of a sudden, you become a target. And Satan begins his work. You see, one of the names that Satan is given is called the adversary or the adversary. And when people get serious about obeying and following God, he begins to live up to that name. There are millions, millions of people who call themselves Christians in churches today who are happily reading their Bibles, going to church on a regular basis, praying on the occasional manner, living decent, decent lives, who are absolutely no threat to Satan at all. They don't bother him in the least. But should those people wake up and discover what a genuine relationship with Christ is, all of a sudden Satan will attack. The same goes for churches. There are plenty of churches out there that are happily singing, plenty of soothing sermons out there to make you feel good about yourself and tell you how, what a wonderful potential you have as a person, that God is here to help you reach your potential. There are plenty of churches like that. But in the end, they don't bother Satan the least. But when God's word takes preeminence in a church, where sin is rebuked, where God is declared to be perfectly holy and expects his children to be holy, when the sinner and the saint are directed to the cross of Christ and the blood that was shed at Calvary, then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. Literally. Because that becomes a threat. The devil understands that something needs to be done. Now as we look back, a year's almost gone. As we look back at the year that's gone and we take stock of where we are today, Good time to take stock, isn't it? To have a bit of stock take in your life. Look at where we are and where we come from and what's missing, what's working and what's not. I would like for us as a church and as individuals to take a walk around the perimeter of our lives, to do a survey of these walls in our lives. And to find out in what condition they're in. Are they dilapidated? Are there breaches in these walls? Are the walls solid? As you walk around the perimeter of your life and you look at the condition of your city walls, you may be discouraged by what you see. And for all, your, for all your effort over the past year, your walls may be more dilapidated than when you first started off. You may feel as if as soon as you fix up one section, the devil comes and tears down another one. 
So you're always trying to play catch up. Some may feel that their walls are very strong, that there is no breach in those walls, the devil can't get in and get out, that their faith is secure. But if they spend a bit of time maybe looking more at the foundations, they may see that the walls are ready to collapse. They may look good on the outside, but they're not as solid as they think on the inside, as they might be. As we examine our hearts today and reflect on the years that's gone by, I would like to encourage you to continue the fight this morning, to keep building, not to lose hope or heart because the enemy is making life difficult for you. And you might say, well, why should my life be difficult? We'll, we'll come to that in a minute. Nehemiah teaches us that our faith, which the Bible calls our shield, needs to be constantly built and strengthened. But in the face of opposition, that God is our strength. And we aren't just in the business of building walls by ourselves either. We build these things together. God has called us to help build each other's walls. I want us to see, first of all, the ways that the enemy tries to discourage the Jews here from rebuilding the wall and from completing their work. The first thing I want to remind you of is one important thing. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to understand one thing that it's inevitable that persecutions and trials will come to you. They will come. It's inevitable that they'll come. Every person who has chosen to obey Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and throughout all of history has either been mocked, rejected, cast out, conspired against, betrayed, tortured, killed, or a combination of those. But the stories we have in God's word also give us great hope because they plainly teach that despite the troubles that you and I might face in this world because of opposition to what we believe and how we live what we believe, that God himself is faithful to us, that God never leaves nor forsakes his children and that in the end, God's plans are never thwarted. God always succeeds. When all hope seems lost from the standpoint of this world, there is always a victory to be won from the vantage point of heaven. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. I'd like to just to, before we go into it anymore, I'd like just to show you what the Apostle Paul thought. Second Timothy chapter three, verse ten to twelve. Look at what Paul says to Timothy here. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at, at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, now listen to this, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Is there any, any way out with that one? Is there any 
door, you can go sideways and say, well, no, I won't be. Paul's very clear about that. He says, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, we can take a verse like that. And if you're a Christian this morning and you've, you've given your heart to the Lord, you can respond in two ways. You can say, woe is me. Because I'm a moving target. And the more I do, or the more involved I become, or the more obedient I become, or the more faithful I become to God's word, the bigger target I become. Or you can say, let me be found faithful in all things. Despite what man or devil may conspire to do to me. Because I'm in great company. Because Jesus suffered the same things before me. He suffered much more persecution than I will ever suffer. And I've got the Apostle Paul and every disciple who gave his life for what he believed in. They all died for what they believed in. And yes, John the Apostle wasn't martyred for what he believed in. But you know something? They imprisoned him on an island and he eventually died there as well. So you and I are in great company this morning. And if you look back at your life at the past year and you say, what a terrible year I've had. And some of us have had very difficult years, I know. I want to encourage you this morning that the Lord knows everything that you and I go through. And he's been through it all before and he understands. With this in mind, let's look at some of the ways that the enemy tries to discourage us and tries to tear us down and stop us from continuing this work of building these walls. Look back at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. The first way Satan will use, or the first method he uses to try to stop you from continuing to build your faith, to build the walls of your life, is other people's anger. Look at verse 1. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we built the wall, he was wroth. He took great indignation and mocked the Jews. Look at verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, they were very wroth. The Hebrew word here means like a, a hot burning mad. Very upset. Sanballat was the king of Samaria. And he was threatened by what was going on over there. You see, he had trade routes that were going through that area. And if the Jews started to build their city again, his profit margin was going to be threatened. So he managed to get together with a few of his buddies, you see. Tobiah, the Arabians, the Ammonites, Ashdodites, and said, listen guys, these, these Jews over here rebuilding their, uh, their walls again are going to be a threat to all of us, and we've got to do something about it. We've got to get angry. And they did. And Satan often uses the anger of others to try to squelch the joy that you and I have as believers. The faith that you and I have. 
Imagine a teenager growing up in a religiously conservative home, for instance. A home where they're, they're loved, where, where the, the Bible's read, for instance, where they go to church on a regular basis, but the gospel's never been preached. And one day that child goes out to a, uh, or goes to a, a, let's say, a camp, a Christian camp, comes back and tells his parents, Mum and Dad, I just got saved. I've been born again and I've given my heart to the Lord. Now, what would you expect his parents to respond? And I'll tell you what they would probably respond. They'll generally respond with anger. You might say, but that's not, that's not right. Why would they respond with anger? Because in their religiously conservative world... This is a threat to them. So they respond with anger, with things such as, what are you talking about being a Christian? Haven't we raised you, haven't we raised you a, uh, a Christian all your life? We raised you a heathen? What are you talking about being born again? Why are they mad instead of happy that their son or daughter has chosen a life with Christ rather than Drugs, sex and immorality. It's because it threatens their lifestyle. It threatens their self-centred worldview. It threatens a neat little world where God's word doesn't really fit in. Same happens to wives who become Christians and husbands who become Christians. The very first thing that you will receive when you turn your life over to God, is anger. And when anger doesn't work, there's mockery and sarcasm. Look at verse 2 and 3. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was with him and said, even that which they build with a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. That's a fair bit of mockery there and sarcasm. This sort of attack is rife in our society towards Christians. When was the last time you were complimented on being Christian? Doesn't happen often these days. Christians who voice their opinion on certain subjects are often very quickly made to look like fools in front of everyone else. They're often the subjects of mockery and sarcasm when the opinions they have which are based on God's word actually go against the grain of modern society. I often read, I often read news articles in electronic magazines. Okay, on the, on the um, whether the internet or or on news service websites, and at the bottom of a lot of the articles, they have a blog. Have you noticed that? You can actually write write in and give your opinion about certain things. And it's inevitable when I read those blogs, which respond to the actual article, whenever a Christian makes a comment about something, the, all the nasties come out of the woodwork. And all this sarcasm and mockery comes out 
with respect to a simple opinion that that person gave. In other words, everyone else can have an opinion, but heaven forbid if a Christian on the internet or anywhere else gives their opinions about sex, abortion, vices, homosexuality, evolution, marriage, giving in church, God, Jesus, the resurrection and so on, morality in society... If you have an opinion about those things and you base that opinion on God's word, be prepared to be mocked. There's no safe place for a Christian opinion these days and it's continuing to get worse. But it doesn't mean that we're meant to be silent either. God calls us to speak the truth regardless of the consequences. Just don't expect to change their minds. We had a, a devotion one Wednesday evening. And one of the things that came from that devotion was very simple, is that we are not called as people to change the morality of our society. We aren't called to change the morality of our society. In other words, I can argue all day about abortion, about marriage, about all these different topics that are, that are flying around in our society today, and I will not convince them of the truth. And the reason is simple. It's because we are arguing from two different worldviews. The Christian argues from a biblical point of view. In other words, we believe in what's called divine revelation. We believe that truth and morality come from the Creator who created all of us and who knows how we are to live. He's the one who sets down the rules of morality. Because he's the creator of all things. He created morality. Yet the world will argue from a secular point of view. In other words, what the majority are thinking at any particular time. So what was relevant 50 years ago is not relevant today. So when those two try to have a discussion about something, it don't work. And the Bible does not call us to change their morality and to convince them how, for example, evil abortion is. Because in the end, you may even, even if you win them over, even if you stand on the street with them and say abortion is wrong and hold up a placard, in the end, you will be in heaven, but they will still be in hell. So what was the point? Expect mockery and sarcasm. If you're a Christian, when mockery and sarcasm fail, the next thing is threats and intimidation. Look at verse 8 and verse 11. And it says that, and, and they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. And our adversary said in verse 11, They shall not know, neither see, till we come in the midst among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. These guys had some, some pretty um, uh, decent plans in place. They wanted to stop what was going on. They would do it a number of different ways. They would rise up in the middle of them, in other words, and to kill them while they were working with them. Or they would simply come and fight. The problem they had, though, was Artaxerxes had given authority for this work to be done. So if the Sumerians and the Arabians got together and fought openly in a battlefield, then they, may have, they might have incurred the wrath of Artaxerxes. So they did it by stealth. Recently I read a, um, a news article that said the Saudi government 
police broke into a private home in Saudi Arabia and arrested some 40 people for celebrating Christmas, of all things, okay, in a private home. And their crime? No one's really sure. They just took them away. And the actual Saudi government said, well, we had to arrest them, arrest them because they were all rolling drunk. How many of you actually believe that? Where there's a will, there's a way. And intimidation is used very effectively in a lot of countries in this world against Christians. The next one is discouragement and exhaustion. Look at verse 10. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed and there is much rubbish, so that we are not able to build the wall. They were worn out. Do you feel worn out sometimes? In your Christian walk, do you feel that there is so much going on and you get so tired, there's so much happening that you just get worn out? And do you know Satan is a master of attacking you when you're worn out? Do you know when, do you know when Satan attacked Jesus? Do you know it said that Jesus went into the wilderness after he was baptised for 40 days and he fasted for 40 days? Do you know when Satan decided to attack him? At the end of the 40 days when he was his weak, at his weakest point. And Satan will attack you and I when we are at our weakest point, expected. He is the master of discouragement, especially for those who are having difficulty. So don't be fooled by Satan's tricks. Don't fall for those little lies that you hear in your head, such as, is it all worth it? I'm really no good. I can't keep going on like this. I'm not getting anywhere. What am I going to do next? See these statements for what they are. The flesh's excuse to return to the world and begin feeding itself again. The fifth thing that, that, that Satan uses to attack Christians is negativism. Mockery comes from the outside, right? Mockery and sarcasm comes from the outside. Negativism comes from the inside. Look at verse 12. It says that it came to pass that when the Jews which dwelt by them came and said unto us ten times, from all places when she shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Ten times they came to them and said, guys, they're going to come and get you. These guys are conspiring. These people are conspiring to try to overtake you. Ten times they told them that from their own people, their own sources. The funny thing was that these people who came and told the Jews that were Jews themselves who were living in the area but weren't doing any work. And that happens all too often in churches too. A lot of times people who aren't involved in any of the church stuff look from the outside and say... There's so much wrong here. There's so many things that need fixing. There's this attack going on and that attack going on. But they're not in the middle of it to help. It's quite disheartening for Christians to hear other Christians being negative and pessimistic about the church. The Israelites fell into the same trap. Do you remember when they were ready to go into the promised land? And God sent these spies and said, look, I want you to go in, survey the land. I want you to go in and, and come back and report. They came back and reported and said, there are giants in that land. 
giants. We are like grasshoppers in their sight and there is no way we can take it. So they, that small group of people, influenced maybe two million. How many would there have been? Possibly two million people. Ten people influenced two million people not to follow through to the next step. How many people does it take to discourage a church and to destroy it from, from the inside? Not many. If that's all it took for, for um, the Israelites. Satan knows that if he can start negative opinions forming on the inside of the church, he's got a, a definite advantage. Because it's not enough for attacks to come from the outside. When you're struggling on the inside as well, things become very difficult. Then there's fear. The final one is fear. Nehemiah reckoned that the, the cumulative effect of all these things, these attacks, negativism, mockery, intimidation, and all these things cause fear in the hearts of the people. And Satan will attempt to do the same to you. Satan would have you paralysed sitting in your seat right now rather than actually getting up and doing something. Nehemiah wouldn't be paralysed with fear. Instead he responds in verse 14, which is what our final verse is on. And it says in verse 14, And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Nehemiah looked at what was going on. He did his survey. He did his stock take and said, something has to be done. And he did it. He wasn't afraid to speak. He looked at the situation, determined the correct response, and went for it and spoke to his people. He said it regardless of the consequences. Regardless of whether he spoke to nobles, rulers, or anyone else for that matter. He spoke the truth. Are we ready to speak the truth? Especially to the people that we know. To our families, our friends. In fact, anyone who needs to hear it. Are we ready to be ridiculed for what we will speak? As I read the word of God, one thing I see most written in here that God's people are to do, it's to be witnesses of the truth. Yes, we had to live God's word, but God has asked each and every one of us to be witnesses of the truth, to testify before kings and people. And if you look back at the New Testament, most of them gave their lives for their testimony. And it's something that I know in the book of Revelation. Right in the end, when the Antichrist comes into this world and is persecuting Christians again, or people have put their faith in God, it says here, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. What you and I speak makes a difference. And we've been called to speak. 
We're not, we haven't been called to, be, to stay silent about things. We've been called to tell people the truth because they need to hear the truth. If, they don't, if we don't speak, they will never hear and never comprehend. Thinks, uh, Nehemiah says, be not afraid of them. Don't be afraid. And Jesus is exactly the same thing. In Hebrews it says, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Jesus says, don't fear man who can simply kill you and then do nothing else. Rather fear him who can kill you and cast your soul into hell. There is no need to fear man when you have God at your side. Nehemiah reminds them that God is great and terrible. There is no one like God. There is none like him. And if you have God on your side, you automatically have a majority. Regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, regardless of how many come against you, you and God are a majority. Remember that. If you remember that, if you truly believe that that with God you can do anything, then you will have courage to fight the battle. And there is much to fight for. We need to be fighting for our brethren, our sons, our daughters, our wives, our houses. This is not a fight. This is not a fight, a physical fight we're talking about here. This is a spiritual fight that begins on our knees. This is a fight that begins on our knees, works its way through God's word, grows in grace and faith, and fights the battle, which is a spiritual one. Let me conclude that you don't need to be afraid of Satan's devices this morning. Next sermon I'll, I'll give you, I'll speak about some of the tactics that and strategies that Nehemiah uses in the fight. But my main point this morning was let's take a stock. Let's take stock of what our wars are like. Let's have a look at this last year. Let's determine have we grown? Are our walls stronger than what they were? Or are they weaker and more dilapidated? And what's our opinion? What feeling do we have toward continuing the fight that we're in? You don't need to be afraid. Because if God is with you, it doesn't matter who's against you today. Let's commit for 2013 to continue building those walls and help each other build them. God bless you. Thank you.